Welcome back everyone. This is your host Akash Pat and you're listening to the Desi VC podcast where I interview angel investors and venture capitalists investing in tech startups in India. This is a week of many firsts for us. Many of you have written in asking if I could bring a limited partner also known as an LP on the podcast and it's finally happening guys. Today on the show is Munish Randev, CEO at Seven Family Office. Munish brings in over 25 years of experience in investment management and family offices. He has advised over 80 families with over 3.2 billion dollars in financial assets and has worked with many business families in structuring their family governance platforms. Well known in the Indian investment industry for his unique expertise and ethical standards, Munish has been part of many family investment committees and family office boards. This conversation is filled with insights, ground reality, and many pieces of advice for young fund managers out there. Let's head in and listen to Munish. Hi, Munish. Welcome to the podcast. You're the first LP that I'm featuring on the podcast, and I'm really delighted to have you here. My pleasure. My pleasure, Akash. nice to be here thanks for making me part of this i'm so glad to be ending the year on a high so let's get started how have the last 8 to 10 months been for you both from a professional and personal standpoint oh well uh, you know every good has bad and bad has good i think that's the motto which works akash in in all the spaces we work but this year uh, it was good because we launched our own uh, you know firm servant family office it saw the light of day in uh, june this year uh even though uh, me and my team members have been working together over the last 6 uh, and a half years in a different entity so for us uh, i think we had baptism by fire so we started off right in the middle of the lockdown and uh, so that was the good one uh i think the only shortcomings or misses that we do feel akash is uh, not being able to do face to face meetings uh because you know our, our business is so uh you know so in person is so sensitive it requires a lot of trust uh, privacy and interpersonal uh, you know engagements i think that has been a bit of a a dampener for us this year but i think it gave us time to set up the business uh, you know at at our own pace uh, make sure the basic foundations are right and basic team members the senior team members come on board and we get our platform right so good and a mix of not so good akash if i can say that so would you say because of how the year has turned out the pandemic and the reason everybody has been working from home for a large part of the year mm-hmm. has that made things more difficult or do would you say it's opened up more opportunities for you given that the world has kind of become a smaller place now uh the uh it was a big disruption for sure i think if we if we don't accept that that we might be wrong Yes there were certain benefits of the disruption as you mentioned that you know it's making world a smaller place yes the acceptance of digital engagements you know voice or even video uh, you know or telepresence in some cases i think that has uh, you know basically transcended the initial hurdles that we saw in these technologies while we engage with our ecosystem our clients or clients engage with each other or even every entity you know behaves in this whole ecosystem so i think that is definitely an advantage which has propped up because of this disruption 
but yes uh, you know if you if you if, if i if i wear my economist hat and just review what has been happening in the markets there have been a lot of dampeners as far as you know uh, the job scene is concerned uh, some of the early uh, younger people who were there in the job market could not find jobs some people lost jobs so there was a bit of a strain on the economy per se but broadly speaking uh, it has also added new types of jobs in the market so that is uh, that is a big plus many jobs we thought never existed are coming around uh, very uh, importantly i think it just it just gave us a time to rethink about our priorities of how we do business uh, how we engage with people uh, do we need to prioritize travel versus in person versus uh, digital mediums and allowed us to maybe become a bit more efficient uh, with our times so that definitely has uh, impacted and i think the one of the last impacts uh, akash which has been there is uh, i think on uh, the psyche of some individuals because you know suddenly it shook a lot of things so you realize that you know many things you took for granted uh, you know are something which you really have to give priority uh, you have to take care of your health make sure that uh, you know your uh, your own well being is also taken care of because these pandemics make you or give you time to think about all things as well so a mix of both uh, but yes some changes some long term maybe some transient on temporary that's a great point that you made it's been a very difficult year for everybody not just you know people who are sitting on our side of the table but for everybody in terms of just interacting and adjusting to how the year has panned out now you made a very good point about you know how the macroeconomic trends have also played a big role in either helping conversations or getting and putting things in perspective for all the stakeholders involved and i want to come back to that at a later stage in the episode but let's wind the clock back a little bit how did you end up founding servant family office now if you could take us through that journey and what's up, what are some of the key milestones that have taken place along the way that has led you down this path it would be great for our listeners sure sure akash uh, so i have been in the uh, investment space for now just over 26 years and uh, have worked i think in every facet of the investment ecosystem right from heading the wealth management unit for a large multinational bank uh, you know namely the abn amber bank in india uh heading the product and proposition vertical for large multinational like the fidelity funds and on the other hand working with an indian wealth management firm and an indian multifamily office uh as well and my initial uh, you know days of being a trader being a debt syndicator structuring agent uh you know all this uh you know just helped me understand the space uh, a bit better from every facet from being a product manufacturer from being a wealth management uh, individual both as the business head and an advisor and lately for the last 6 years uh, you know i have been uh, you know in the family office space i think what led to the birth of servin was uh, uh, broadly three things one i think we you know me and my team members who are there along with me who you know as i said have a common work history they used to be part of my earlier team uh, we realized that you know this is a business which requires a very different handling uh, requires very high levels of integrity uh, very high levels of deep understanding of the uh, space that we are in which is family office advisory hands on experience and 
also the fact that uh, we don't have many such firms in India at this point of time, uh, which was also an opportunity and also a, a disadvantage because obviously you can't uh, benchmark yourself with uh, people with 10, 15, 20 years track record. They are not there. So I think the birth was a combination of all these three things, the lack of uh, choice available uh, with the clients and our passion towards being very high on integrity have absolute no conflict of interest uh, when we advise. And thirdly, I think our, our whole uh, focus on people. And if I was as a founder or my co-founder, uh, we wanted to uh, really build something on these three, uh, these three uh, points and platforms, we realized that unless we build our own, uh, that's the only way we can actually uh, keep the vision of the company uh, as clean and straight. And uh, we had also seen in the past how visions do start with the best uh, vision statements and maybe best uh, uh, you know, endeavors, but over a period of time under pressure, you know, they do get sullied or you know, you know, gray does start playing a role. So we are very clear, uh, we want to be an absolutely independent entity, uh, no conflict of interest at all, which basically means that when we are advising a family office, uh, we have no baggage of having any of our own products. Uh, we do not have a PMS or a broking license or nothing like that. Also, we don't do placement mandates of investment banking deals or startup equity or funds. So basically there is no commercial engagement with any product providers, uh, deal sources or investment banking mandates or nothing like that. So I think, and we were very clear that we want to remain independent. So I think that joint vision that I shared uh, you know, with my team and also the investors that who are there in our firm uh, who supported us uh, and saw this vision as well. I think that uh, led us to believe that yes, we can uh, have uh, this kind of a business. And particularly uh, in a time, uh, Akash, when business families are going through a transition phase, uh, because you know, there, is, there is the next gen coming into the uh, business fold, which has maybe in most cases studied abroad, they understand what family offices do. And if you actually look around today in the Indian market, in the, you, know, you can count uh, dedicated family office advisors on just not maybe fingers of one of your hands, that's it. And that too, uh, haven't been able to scale up that much. And incidentally, me and my team, uh, and the, in the courage we got was that me and my team have advised now over 80 families uh, during our past jobs and our current uh, term at Servin have advised more than three and a half billion dollars of financial assets. So that experience by itself is very differentiated. So I think that gave us a lot of courage and comfort that we've already showcased what we can do so if we actually stick to our vision at Servin and set up this firm, I think we'll be able to have a very differentiated and a very clean advisory platform for any business family or even entrepreneurs who wish to set up their family office after they have maybe cashed out. So that's, you know, broadly how, you know, the reason why Servin got set up in the first place. That's fantastic. I love the vision and I like how you've modeled and structured it. One of the points that you made was with respect to advisory and the new generation that's coming in and taking over family businesses and family offices. How have family offices evolved over the years? You know, you've been in the industry now for almost close to three decades and you've been advising firms and managing assets over these years. How, what's, what's the evolution that's come about, Manish, over the last, say, 15, 20 years since 
the time when, you know, as venture as NASA class within India is beginning to grow, you know, from if you dial the clock back to the early 2000s with the dot-com era, yeah. it kind of started evolving. And then you started seeing these smaller VC firms coming into the industry in India as such. And now with the last 10 years, we've seen the birth of 250 plus VC firms in India. So how are the, how's the mentality shifted in terms of diversifying asset classes and investments with respect to just family offices in the country? Sure. Uh, I'll just break it down, Akash, into two parts. One, on the family office side, I think we are still in the nascent stages as far as the whole concept of family office. I'll not call it an industry, but a concept of family office has been. So if I turn by the clock around 2010, uh, exactly 10 years ago, I think we were still in the early stages where family offices were being talked about. Uh, very few people did know what family offices meant. Uh, still very few people know what family offices actually mean and actually do. And uh, by the time it was 2014, when I was joining a a multifamily office firm and you know disrupting myself from uh, the cushy wealth management jobs with high incentives and getting into a you know a fee based fee only based uh, you know product uh, category called the multifamily office uh, this allowed me to even check on my ability to advise so and when we actually started reaching out to families in 2014 we realized a lot of education has to be done to even tell people what family offices are. And I think two out of three meetings that me and my team used to do were just telling them about what families, family offices do and why do families need them. So the, you know, the, the understanding has gone from, under, you know, maybe in the early 2010, 11 and 12 from assuming that family office is just a way of, you know, accumulating all your investments through different wealth managers and showing yourself a comprehensive report. Now, this may sound funny, but this was a proposition being sold by many wealth managers that I'll be your family office. I'll give you a comprehensive report across all your wealth management, uh, you know, relationships. That was the initial start, which has nothing to do with what family offices actually do. Uh, but switch over to 2020. Uh, I think through efforts of a lot of people like me, maybe my team and maybe people like us, uh, we've been actually able to educate a lot of families about what family offices do. And as you mentioned about the next gen, uh, next gen, as I said, in most uh, business families or family businesses, uh, you know, they have been educated abroad or they have exposure abroad, they've traveled abroad, they have friends abroad maybe, and they have heard of what family offices actually do. And when they actually end up joining up businesses or becoming uh, active player in the family ecosystem inside their business family, they start, you know, tossing this idea with the older gen in most cases. Uh, older gen still, you know, still wasn't exposed to this phenomena, you know, because they were busy either creating wealth for the family or just running their businesses. So the new uh, next gens are definitely a force which is providing this tailwind for the set of family offices. And now at least people are open to understanding. Yes, there are still more gaps, uh, Akash, in understanding what a family office uh, you know, really does, even if people do know the basics. Uh, just to give you one example that, you know, when you, uh, when, uh, when you have your own single family office, the way you work is that you assess managers, you assess your asset allocation strategies, you choose managers depending upon their track record and all. But then, you know, you also try to minimize your 
investment cost, uh, which is your expenses. Now that's a very basic tenet of a single family office. But we sometimes see people have a single family office, but then keep on working with wealth management distributors, uh, ending up increasing their cost in most cases. Uh, so there are some basic gaps with understanding, which we are trying to obviously you know, reach out to as many people as possible with us. Now, coming to your question about venture capital, uh, if I roll back to 2010, uh, there were few unstructured family offices who had wealth and who were doing investments in the venture capital space, but very well-known names without naming anybody in particular. Uh, some of the largest tech promoters in the country had one of the largest family offices in India, and they were very active in the, in the venture capital space. But in 2010-11, uh, if you met any family and said, you know what, you may have an unstructured family office, but do you want to invest in a fund maybe, which has a, 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 a age of say eight to 10 years, the answer would have been, you know, I can't see more than five years. You know, five years for me was a long, long period as what the listed equity managers have told me. So I think that was where we started off with many families at that point of time. Direct deal investing was uh, a bit of a less uh, number of deals being happening at that point of time. The number of deals were not that much, uh, which can take up so many pages in pink papers today. You got, you know, people tracking deals left, right and center. Uh, that time it wasn't there. Uh, this led to uh, the initial seeds of a VC culture being put in family offices. And I think there and then uh, family office slowly and subtly have been increasing their uh, hold, let me say, to, that, to this market because on one hand you have some institutional LPs and on the other hand you have very large and now a lot of uh, venture capital investing uh, family offices who have clear allocations to venture capital their uh, family office or family members know what they're looking for. Yes, they may have advice, which is internal. They may have hired people to uh, help them manage their venture capital portfolios, or they work with exper you know, experienced advisors like us to help them structure their venture capital platform. And, and so that's, that's come a long way in the last uh, uh, 10 years. And I'll not be surprised if uh, they become the family office investment uh, pool in the venture capital space becomes a very large pool. Uh, and this is also uh, due to the fact that if we, if we just look at uh, family businesses and then we look at business families, uh, they have an understanding of risk because they have been entrepreneurs themselves. So what they have done their own business, they have a bit of a knack of identifying that with entrepreneurs, the Indian entrepreneurs, the startup founders of today. So the only uh, reason they were not very active was basically because of lack of maybe understanding of the space of the sectors uh, where the founders were active in or the fund space where they did not know how to assess funds. There were no track records. I think that's now coming of age as we speak. And very soon, they will be very large part of all venture fundraisers. And in some cases, startup founders will get most of their allocations from the um, family offices itself. What changed, Munesh? Why have family offices suddenly taken an interest in the Indian tech ecosystem? What you, you did mention that liquidation is going to be difficult because eight to 10 years of locking up assets is not something yeah. that family offices today really yeah. uh, want to set themselves up for. What has really changed? What has attracted them here? You know, given that some of the family businesses uh, and family offices historically and traditionally have not had a history in 
tech themselves. You know, they have not right. gone out and built tech businesses. They have built traditional businesses and uh, services, most mostly in the services industry. Mm-hmm. What has really shifted? Is it is it the new generation that's coming in and talking to their families and saying tech is really important, or is it just the fact that they've been looking at investments across the spectrum across the industry and thinking that this is something they shouldn't be missing out on, or it's a chance for them to diversify, or it could be all of the above. But being at the ground level and having conversations with family offices and leaders within these, what are some of the highlights that you've been seeing that has really changed and shifted their mentality? Sure. So as you rightly said, uh, Akash, there have been uh, you know three or four different reasons why uh, VC investing is gaining uh, momentum. Uh, primarily, I think let's first get the obvious point right. I think expectations of higher returns are obviously the cause of many investments or investment strategies. So in the past, uh, when they have viewed the US markets and they get very large headlines about large exits, uh, unicorns or sunicorns or whatever versions of alphabets we use, I think that that excitement does play into the the mindset of uh, many uh, families who have some cash surplus which they have segregated from their businesses. So that obviously is the one clear agenda of getting a higher return, maybe from listed equity zone. Uh, besides that, I think some of the key changes which have happened is, I think the the number of uh, uh, professionals in this space have increased. So you have now more managers in the space who bring in their expertise. They talk about their expertise. You have this whole ecosystem in India, you know, started by the you know startup India. A platform and many such platforms, incubation centers, innovation centers being built over the last 10 years. And frankly, if you just look back 10 years, most of it wasn't there. So I think it catches a lot of interest from uh, people, anybody who has cash, anybody who is allocating money, anybody who's creating a profile. You rightly mentioned that most of the old age businesses did not have tech orientation or tech inclination or even understanding in that space. I think that's the primary reason that some of these old age businesses started looking at tech as an investment asset class from their venture capital allocations. Now, this brings in two things for them. One, it diversifies them away from their main family business, not to a major extent, but to a some extent possible, because the risk is now not only in one industry that the family operates in, and it also uh, allows the family to add a new age business, maybe just as an investor, not as a promoter, but just as an investor in that space. So it gives them a bit of a diversification of risk uh, from their old age businesses to new age or new areas of uh, business opportunities that come their way. And secondly, the next gen, which you mentioned again, next gen is more or has been and will be more in tune of what is current and now and their vision of what can be in the future, how can the future look like? Because these next gen, uh, they also you know, talk to each other, they engage with each other, they understand what is happening, they share a lot. Uh, besides social media, they share, they talk, they share views on what can be the future, how can the future look like? So I think it naturally pushes them to be a bit uh, towards these uh, new age uh, sectors like technology and different facets of technology, not just one technology even certain facts of non-technology-based sectors like consumer uh, consumer foods, packaged foods, consumer brands, uh, health tech, healthcare, healthcare services, many such things do get, uh, do, you know, give, get their 
focus from these next gens. So next gens are a, a very integral part of this risk diversification. And for the first gen in the family businesses, for them, uh, slowly and slowly they do understand they need to de-risk their family money as well. Because initially, if you remember, if you look back in India over the last 30, 40, 50 years, many times the best suggestion given to the family member was if you have some cash surplus, put it back into your own business because that business, you know, you can control it and you still get good returns. But I think that mindset kept on changing because the business cycles for different industries are getting shorter and shorter. You can't be a monopoly for you know now 50 years or 60 years. There will be competition uh, hurdles. Uh, of entry are getting uh, maybe uh, uh, less so, uh, you know, intimidating now in many sectors. So I think that's the natural progression of de-risking your business. And thirdly, uh, what has happened is, is sheer uh, number of opportunities available. As I mentioned, number of managers have increased, you know, new founders are coming on board with new solutions for different problems. All those has created a buzz as well. So I will not be wrong in saying that FOMO has also played its part. So this whole fear of missing out is something uh, which is also playing on many of these families that what if we miss out in creating wealth because we've heard so many stories about it. That's also playing on your head. And lastly, and not the least, I think some vintage has come in. So many managers have a vintage in India right now. Uh, we have seen certain cycles already play out in certain of the startup sectors. We've seen you know, really astronomical valuations and then maybe drops after that. Uh, we are already seeing a lot of disruptions happening in some of the valuations of some well-known companies, some getting shut off, some literally couldn't survive more than six months into the pandemic uh, disruption. So I think some cycle, cyclical uh, vintage has been built in. Uh, there are more data points which can be tracked. There are agencies who are tracking it. So it's becoming a less of a black box, comparatively speaking, and more to do with assessing managers or assessing startup deals vis-a-vis -vis some history which is now available to these investors. So it's becoming a bit more uh, familiar territory for them, which they can then apply their diligence assessment uh, templates and get to choose a, a good uh, manager or a good startup deal. So these have been a few uh, you know, tailwinds or few parameters which have changed and pushed the family offices towards uh, venture capital investing. So those are great insights here, Manish, and I want to dissect them as much as possible if I can. So let me start off with this as a follow-up question. You mentioned about diversifying and getting into industries that have tailwind. You spoke about healthcare services, health tech, uh, consumer products and consumer technology. Who and how within family offices is developing the thesis? And is the thesis development something that's very close to the value add that the family office can bring to the table? Or is it very general in terms of, okay, this is where we want to go. So it could be a family office that's probably been historically in retail, but yes, retail obviously happens to be an industry that they have a lot of connections in and they can obviously add a lot of value, but at the same time, they want to diversify outside of this the retail industry and try and look at other sectors. So who and how are they identifying sectors that they want to invest in and how are those decisions coming along? So this uh, Akash is part of, uh, you know, the, the planning process when you actually uh, setting up the investment policy document for a family. And this we do what, you know, what we do for our families to start with. Now, usually the first time you have, you start a discussion about venture capital investing or startup investing, 
the natural inclination for them is to be if they are choosing a direct investment route to be in the space which is maybe you know just next to the space their main business in now let's take an example uh, you mentioned retail uh, if it's physical retail supposing somebody owns chains of stores or somebody owns a physical uh, delivery methodologies of uh, say a clothing business you know have chains of stores of branded clothing they started realizing that you know we are in a good business and have been making good amount of money in the past but things are changing so can we look at some areas which may disrupt my business are already disrupting my business or some things which are symbiotic to my business maybe i can use them they can use my expertise for example in like maybe sourcing of uh, textile is some if they are investing in a fashion brand maybe they can use their domain experience in sourcing manufacturing uh, even um, you know merchandising um, the 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 kind of uh, support they can give so they generally try to be in the same space where they can either add value to start with when they're doing direct investments uh, only after they become a bit more comfortable they actually start looking at other sectors now your question about who builds the policies or the thesis behind everything so initially what i have seen maybe you know i would have met now close to 100 family offices in india uh, not all of them are clients i wish they would be but uh, what you what you see with them is that initially it's the family members who sit down assess and the assessment process can be run two three ways they talk to a lot of people in the market in their social circles or people they believe have a better understanding of that space and try to maybe gauge of you know what is the space that they they feel more comfortable in it starts everything starts from there after that they have two paths usually either they will hire some people internally to as advisors or piggy bank on certain advisors uh, externally available to them so for example when we work with them we sit with them and actually you know we actually take almost a week 10 days to just thaw out the thesis of of private market investing where they want to be what kind of risk do they want to take do they want to be in known domains or uh, slightly known domains or absolutely un correlated domains for example your you know your you take the example of retail and uh, you know, maybe let's take ai or iot now there is no link but he or uh, she whoever is in the family office can take a call that yes if these are new age businesses let's build an allocation which is there and when i say allocation this is where the tricky part comes in one you start allocating to private markets and then within that you start allocating to the comfort zone of the family which which they are comfortable investing into the not so comfort zone of the family for example tech investing or deep tech investing artificial intelligence machine learning which the family may not know anything about so they do allocate but they don't start investing directly in that space and i'll come to that how they do that so thesis get gets build up ground up from their allocation to private markets to what space in the private market they want to be which stage in the private market they want to be if there is an internal resource who understands this space uh he is brought in or she is brought in but if they feel that you know usually you know people like that are not available in their own internal ecosystem they'll reach out to the market get some sort of informal guidance and that's the starting point before they actually realize that do they need a constant and a good quality guidance or somebody overlooking the whole process then they actually reach out to external managers sometime they start working with one uh, gp or one fund manager 
who become their sort of an advisor uh you know in this space uh we always warn them that you know don't 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 rely on just one manager or two manager to create your whole thesis look outside what is there maybe talk to 15 managers to understand spaces but ultimately they'll end up having to sign off on the thesis so unless you have an internal resource uh, who can look at it it's you know it's better to work for them to work with external advisors to build this thesis for them now once they build this thesis about which stage which sectors then the next stage of thesis which it does get built in and we help them in the process is do you want to go direct or do you want to go through a fund and again naturally if there are domains which are uh, right next to the domains that they are in they are aligned or linked domains they will prefer going direct now inside direct uh, do you want to just piggy bank on other large investors or maybe lead around in some cases so there are complexities build and the planning does gets does get built to various levels now this may not be there with every family uh, some may be structured in some families some may be unwritten some may be unstructured but that's broadly the thought process with most families and the spaces they don't know anything about usually they start with funds and fund managers and then they will allocate to these funds over a period of time and then wait for maybe the investment cycle to end and then see how these things uh, you know play out and they also take that time to understand that space and then slowly and steadily maybe after 5 6 7 years of initiating investments in non related sector funds they start looking at direct deals so the 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 thesis is partly internal in some cases it stays internal in case the family member himself or herself can take up that uh, that mantle of a job to be done if not then they they naturally will reach out to experts in the market which includes all the ecosystem and finally uh, if they realize that the sizes are large and the allocations are complex they will actually reach out to people like us uh, as part of the family office uh, proposition that we offer to them now there are two two situations here right monish that uh, family offices can be investing into they can set up an entity uh, themselves to directly invest in startups by hiring an investment professional or could be somebody internally who will managing the funds or you could invest directly into vc funds and become a fund of fund structure now in both these scenarios what are the kind of returns that family offices are looking at you know when they're setting up because they do understand that this is very different this is a new asset class for them that they're investing in so if they set up a family office that invests directly into startups versus investing into a fund that then invests in startups what are the kind of um mentality that these investment offices have versus uh, and at the same point uh go ahead and expect in terms of returns a uh, very interesting question akash uh, but the answer uh, that i will give you is something which is which is a bit of a paradox uh, if you look at the if you look at the expectation of returns broadly from the venture capital space uh, it has been uh, approximately 400 to 500 basis point above possibly the large cap listed market space that if the equity markets are giving you say 12% uh then the venture capital should give you at least maybe 17 18% kind of yields now this is a relative risk premium based uh, approach uh, and that's the way most uh, asset classes uh, expected returns do get built up so nothing wrong in that now the trouble comes in that when you are 
setting up your own own vehicle uh, with a designated fund manager to manage it uh, vis-a-vis giving money to a segregated or a third party fund manager for me it is no different for the family in their head it is different now i'll tell you the reason why now for me the an internal vehicle which the family sets up should be uh, open to the same kind of diligence to the same kind of uh, performance Uh, appraisal assessment assessment of underlying deals ability to attract deals as what we do the assessment for third party managers because ultimately there is a single pool of capital if you allocate to your internal uh, vehicle for managing managing the venture capital part of it through a fund manager it should be assessed in the same way i assess a third party now how does it make a difference in expectation of returns now theoretically Uh, if your internal fund manager or the external fund manager are of the same capability and ability theoretically uh, you should be saving that maybe one and a half two and a half three percent of uh, management fee plus carry and all that cost which goes in when you actually put money into a third party manager because if you are running your own vehicle with your own manager chances are that you won't be charging yourself a very large expense fee there'll be an actual expense of running that team of uh, of that manager who is managing the fund along with the requisite uh, you know analysts and operational backups and all that stuff it will definitely be a lower cost uh, operation as compared to giving money to a third party fund manager now expectations are like that now it again will boil down to the expertise of that manager uh, if you hire uh, somebody with a lot of experience and expertise will come at a high cost for sure uh, and if that person brings in an own team and builds a largest team then obviously you take up the whole cost akin to giving money to a third party manager so the expense uh, advantages or lower cost advantages cease to exist there and then uh, but ultimately you will realize that the families are a sensitive lot they are a, they are an emotional lot so they will give a bit more leeway to their internal vehicle as compared to the external vehicle and and please uh, i will not forget to mention that i am assuming that there is no third party money in their own internal vehicle and it's only the family money so family money investing through the own vehicles i would recommend to only those families who have a fair bit of understanding in the space that they want to launch their vehicles in because usually these vehicles are not sector agnostic they are very hardcore niche agnostic and we know many families in india who came from such domains and they ended up setting up firms uh, funds in the same domains that you know maybe they sold off some businesses in so they they can do it because they have domain experience but if you don't have domain experience obviously these vehicles are not a, a good bet we have seen two or three families coming together and forming these uh, these alliances for launching their own funds they are also good because each family may bring in their own expertise or their own domain expertise and hopefully that will benefit the the kind of a group investing uh, intention that is there in the product in the in the fund so that's the that's the broad you know reason of why this would happen in in the family office space but when it comes to expectation of returns frankly what we tell uh, family offices is that assess each vehicle that you invest in like a third party vehicle made before private markets made even before listed market because even listed markets we see this happening that family office wants to manage his own listed equity part internally but then the question is that would you have been better off giving money to an external manager 
so it's a constant uh, it's a constant check on what is really benefiting the family is it benefiting to absolutely insource everything in the venture capital space or outsource or a combination of the two and at the end of the year how do you assess both these vehicles will become very important because if your internal vehicle keeps on giving you a lower return relatively uh, it's a cost which will get compounded over a period of time so you brought this point up multiple times on the episode where you mentioned that the person who's managing the funds on behalf of the family office needs to be somebody who understands the nuances so on a related note can any investment professional manage and handle investments on behalf of a family office i guess i know the answer here but what i'm trying to get to are the pitfalls and risks associated with hiring just anyone versus someone who understands how family offices work and you and i spoke about the nuances the geography like things that really matter the values of the family what are the subtle nuances that make this a very different proposition than running just a regular vc fund sure so let me just take it into two parts the professional angle and the let me call it the cultural angle as as we mentioned so on the professional side if you are hiring a a private equity manager or venture capital manager to manage your family money there are two things that the families have to be really cautious of and as you mentioned that the answer is quite obvious that not everybody can the reason why everybody can't depends upon your past experience of did you have discretionary capital which you were investing earlier so that i'm assuming that whoever the family hires did have an experience of uh, of managing discretionary capital and it's very important discretionary capital because that puts the onus of investment decisions with that particular manager that particular professional it's very difficult for an investment banker to become a fund manager and and, and frankly it's it's almost uh, you know unheard of in most cases unless and until you have spent enough time on the discretionary side or uh, managing a discretionary money for for clients and taking their own your own decisions in uh, in when the investing part so when a family uh, when a person like that chooses to join a family office he should realize two three things on the professional side if he doesn't come with discretionary uh, experience they he has a very sharp learning curve which he has to go through even before starting you know services for the family if he does come with a discretionary side management he will you know understand the nuances and the platform and the foundation which requires to set up that uh, you know vehicle for that family on the professional side now i'll come to the cultural side of things working for a, a venture capital fund as a fund manager or whoever you may call them is very different from working as the fund manager of a family owned fund there are many things when you work with a venture capital fund which are taken for granted for example all the partners in that fund understand investing in the private market space all the people do understand the risk which is which comes along with that particular space there is also cross pollination of ideas which happens between the different partners because usually there are 2 3 4 or even 5 6 gps in some cases there is cross pollination there is cross fertilization of ideas which happens as a support support structure available to bounce off ideas suddenly and i've seen many cases where this venture capital manager joins a family and suddenly feels lost because there is no sounding board uh, there is no uh, exchange of ideas happening in the office because everybody assumes that he is one person who will just tell them what to do 
and how to manage money, where to put in the money, where to exit, and you know how to even assess those underlying opportunities. So the expectations from that manager goes up, you know, phenomenally high. So sometimes that manager seems a bit lost. In many cases, they feel they have to do a lot more things as compared to when they were managing money with the venture capital fund. So that's the that's the professional angle, and partly what he expects from joining a family office. Now, then there is a cultural angle, and this I keep on coming up, you know, very frequently in my talk is that managing a family office or family money is as much of a people's business as an investment business. because you need to be able to understand what are the dreams wishes fears of that family owner the karta of that family or the family group or individuals in the family you need to understand the family dynamics as well because they also play a very important role many a times you know as i have sat in family investment boards as an external board member wherein they have a private equity manager internal who is continuously trying to convince each of every family member about how the deal is so fantastic and just because of family dynamics you know it gets keeps and getting shot down because there is a voting methodology in that family so that you know that individual gets lost because he is up to he has he's a challenge he's taking is something which is beyond his professional skills it's right. not what he has learned so i think that's the that's the cultural part of managing families Uh, and their aspiration and fears which actually needs to be understood by this uh, private equity manager so it's not that easy a job it's also vice versa right even the families need to understand that whoever they end up hiring needs to one be able to manage and work with all of the bureaucracy sometimes that's involved uh, with family offices and at the same time also manage expectations so would you say the onus is also on the family office to hire the right person so that you know if this person's not able to then convince certain members on their family then you know you're either one killing time or two you're missing out on the right opportunities that can really maximize some returns on your investment and third and most importantly you know you're 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 in it for for the long haul if you think about it and if you're not hiring the right person then chances are the first initial couple of years that you've spent investing in this person is not going to give you returns because by no way has it been a great experience for you and for for all you know you might even pull yourself out of investing into the asset class itself very very uh, good question akash the the whole issue regarding hiring of uh, for single family office is much talked about in closed doors it doesn't see the light of the day but it does get talked about the reason is that it's actually not very easy to hire good quality talent for single family offices contrary to what people might think that you know it's a very good job it's a long term job you're on, always on the buy side with capital on your side but attractive attracting good quality talent is very difficult for single family offices now let's just take let, let me take just one minute of just telling you painting a picture of what happens when you're hiring for a single family office if you really hire a good quality manager and i'm, I'm talking about each asset class forget just the private markets but even the listed markets bonds and everything or just a cio a good cio or a good private equities manager will come at a very high cost so you need to be able to justify that cost in the size of your portfolio that is point number 1 point number 2 is that even if you are able to justify the cost you should be able to justify why would that person remain with you 
over a long period of time. And as you rightly mentioned, uh, it's a very long haul business. It's not just about investing. Specifically, when you're investing in direct deals, it is also about sometimes assessing, assessing, mentoring, handholding, making sure that you are right up there, understanding the firm, and maybe then almost exiting that firm in, in some point of time. So it's a very long haul process. Uh, how do you keep and retain that manager over a long period of time? Because he may work with you for three, four years and he may leave and the new manager comes and he doesn't believe in the same thesis as the old manager. Then you're not having a continuity in your investment process. So how do you retain that? Now, people have tried building in carry, you know, you know carry or sort of incentive plans over a period of time or delayed carry or delayed incentive plans into this, but it is not a perfect solution. So for an individual to join a family office, it is very important that they understand what they're getting into. And like you rightly mentioned, the, it's, the onus is also on the family to create an environment of making sure the person stays, but creating that environment is not that easy. One, uh, assuming he gets a good salary equivalent to what he gets in the market, okay, that's a tick. Secondly, if there's a carry built into it, depending on certain assessment, Okay, let's assume that happens and the tick mark next to the expectations. So the family says, I have a full-fledged carry program for the manager, for the fund manager who joins me. Thirdly, and I will not call it bureaucracy, but again, coming back to interpersonal skills, uh, you know, trying to gel with how that family functions, family individuals functions, because it is not a very professionally structured organization that most of these family offices have. So those also play a very subtle role, which families cannot change overnight. It will take them years to change that kind of a stuff. So I think that they can only endeavor to do as much as time. And after that, it's a matter of chance if they get a good individuals. That's the reason why today, if I look at many family offices, uh, you don't find very senior level people sitting as the head of family office or head of uh, private markets and all that space. You generally, you get middle level managers sitting in those locations and nothing wrong in it because these are as hardworking as the senior guys. But it is just that the market is not matured enough and the families themselves are going to the first phase of family office development to realize what it takes to build a long-term family office team. And do realize, uh, Akash, this, this whole family office space is not even five, six, seven years old. And since the families right. are also coming to terms with what these family offices are supposed to do and how to manage it. It's almost like a separate institution these families have to run and almost as professionally as their mainline business. So it will take some time to attract good quality talent towards uh, these single family offices. Let's move on to the uh, an interesting sort of evolution that you've spoken about within the industry, which is investing in new fund managers. You know, we spoke about hiring for investment professionals and yeah. what the skill sets required on that front. Now, in terms of investing into a new fund manager, what, do you, what are some of the things that family offices look at? Or what are you looking at when you're looking to invest your family office money into, say, a VC fund? Sure. What, apart from maybe previous track record, or if you're investing into a first-time fund manager, this is somebody without a track record, somebody who has just come, you know, with a little bit of industry experience and starting their own VC fund for the first time. What are some of the things that you look at that they might or should have that really makes it an attractive proposition for you to then invest in this person? Sure. 
So obviously, as you rightly said, if you are a vintage manager, there are various uh, objective and subjective valuation methodologies that we use at Servin, which are all self. Uh, we have developed them ground up over the last uh, six, seven years. Uh, the idea of choosing a new fund manager, you know, this five years back, most of the family was family offices would have said no. Let us not try. Let's see at least one fund, you know, coming in from there because. Everybody tries to build their trendings that the best from fund from a fund manager is the third fund, because they've learned the mistakes. You know they've done whatever wrong they could do, and they understand their space and their expertise, and now they are ready for the third fund, and that should be the best fund. Now, when we say a new fund manager, Akash, you know there are in our head we segregate them into three parts. One is a new fund manager coming from maybe an established GP team, and who's broken away to set up a Brand new fund. He was never managing a fund. Maybe he was a partner in the in the earlier firm. Has a maybe say five, six, seven years experience. Uh, you know, managing being part of a venture capital uh, team in the industry. That's one type of a new fund manager. Second type of fund manager has been a domain expert. You know, who may be working in the same domain. Uh, have has not managed money, but has a deep insight into a particular domain. It may be artificial intelligence, big data, machine learning, you know, um, automation, and all those kind of spaces. Even health tech, healthcare. He or she may be a domain expert in that region, and then understands that. Look, I'm an insider. I know absolutely what is happening in the industry. Can I look at starting my own fund, use, utilizing my domain expertise? That's that's a second type of a new fund manager, and third type. Is a new manager with a maybe a very small experience in working in an investment banking team or not managing discretionary, you know, uh, mandate for a family. These are the three categories that we put a new fund manager. We are absolutely okay for the first two categories because you know we have to realize Akash that when we represent families, we have to take risk and return into absolute focus and not just one of these two things. seeding a new fund manager who is breaking away from a gp team we have a model which can actually assess uh, you know his role in the past what his learnings have been and it becomes a bit more subjective call on that manager secondly a domain expert who is breaking up and you know from his domain uh, on mainline uh, you know job and breaking away and converting himself to a manager again it's easier to assess and you assess the story of that manager you assess the domain expertise of that manager you and this happens through you know checking up with your ecosystem so those two categories uh, we do work with but relatively less so when for a new fund, you know new manager comes up but i think for us whenever whenever we meet a new fund manager or a relatively new fund manager a first time manager in particular we generally you know prefer him or her to be absolutely honest about what they have done in the past what has their learnings been and come across as honest to their own thesis of what are you looking for why are you choosing to launch a fund what are your thesis for different sectors now we are not domain experts in all these spaces of startups and uh, you know these kind of new age business we are not but we can at least understand and actually we can read into the lines when a individual is trying to convince us of his ability to create a thesis in each niche or a subsector of say the tech uh, tech world we can actually read between the lines and obviously we do do our ecosystem checks about the individuals so i think if the person is honest to what they are wanting to create has shown 
has shown you know expertise in the space they want to they are launching the fund in thirdly has had some mentoring experience by being part of a gp team or a domain team which does uh, investing or runs businesses in the same space we are comfortable yes we cannot deploy a full fledged uh, uh, you know a full fledged template for assessing a fund manager as we do for vintage fund managers because our process is very similar to some of these large pension funds in as as detailed uh, and goes into as many steps as almost as large as pension funds so we don't want to intimidate that first time manager because obviously they can't give us most of the data that we ask for so beyond data i think it's more to do with uh, you know the honesty in the approach the thesis they are creating the cross checks that we do uh, in the ecosystem about that fund manager and how he or she comes across uh, true to the thesis that they really want to bring and add value to any portfolio so it's a bit differentiated a bit more uh, touchy feely a bit more sensitive and a bit more subjective call on that manager akash what is the typical cycle here munish how long does it take for family offices to invest on average in a fund manager or an emerging fund manager so for a fund manager which has a track record i think especially if we are working with that with that family uh, it is uh, it is pretty fast because our templates are completely built uh, you know me and my team would have access as assessed uh, or diligence close to now around 60 or 70 uh different managers in the indian space so we have a fair understanding of who is coming you know their backgrounds and all that so it's it's pretty fast but for a family office who's going without any support i think for them it takes a while to get that comfort and sometimes the vc fund managers do get a bit irritated and we we get to hear many stories that you know this uh, family office wasted our time took 3 months had seven meetings had you know how many questions across those meetings but never ended up investing but i keep on telling vcs that look when it's your money that you're investing you take a very different approach and when uh, maybe a pension fund manager investing in money it's still institutional money but we many many over actually investing your own hard earned money and that too of maybe your earlier generation who has you know explicitly told you to please safeguard wealth as well be cautious and all i think they will ask more questions because they are coming in from a space where they don't have much understanding so i think a uh, level of patience when you work with a family office has needs to be there and usually their investment uh, period or their time taken from the first meeting to the investment or if even if the investment doesn't happen will be almost double or triple for any institutional investor who have set policies and set templates but yes families who do work with uh, experts or who have internal experts in their teams uh, i think those uh, those periods are not very different from how uh, institutions would invest uh, in most cases no these are great insights and when you speak to potential fund managers uh, and when you speak to family offices what are the biggest differences that you have seen from the way that you directly interact with them versus how family offices are interacting with them both from an advisory standpoint as well as just from a direct deployment of capital to the fund perspective is that does that question kind of make sense so you are talking about managers not direct investments not direct investments yes in managers so i think uh naturally akash when we deal with managers we come with a a bit of a vintage of dealing with multiple types of managers you know investing in different stages of the investment uh, uh, whole investment space so we come with that as i you know as i mentioned earlier that we have assessed uh, 
a fair number of uh, fund managers in the industry. I think that number would be now close to 70 now, if not around 65 as we speak. Uh, we have a fair estimate of uh, understanding of each fund manager's psyche, their ability to attract deals, their nuances when they exit. Are they always exiting or entering a particular deal uh, in a group? We can even predict what kind of sectors attract these managers. So we have a fair idea of the ecosystem of what are the different theses being created by fund managers. So obviously our line of questioning uh, doesn't start from zero. It maybe starts from 50 onwards because some of the uh, industry knowledge we would always have. When I assess a fund manager or even I you know, talk to a fund manager, I, I really tell that person that you, know, you are the expert. Uh, I may not know as much as you. So please explain to me as much as possible uh, you know, about what you are attempting to uh, invest into, the space you're trying to invest into and what your thesis is. But when the family offices start, you know, they usually start maybe not from a 50, but maybe from a 20th point or 20th percentile of knowledge uh, internal to them. So they would actually have very different sort of questioning. Sometimes these questions can be not very uh, high IQ, let me call it this way, uh, because the family office needs to understand many things beyond uh, my question about, you know, to a fund manager about, okay, you are investing in the IoT space. Would it be industrial IoT? Are you looking at consumer IoT? Are you trying to create a hub model for, uh, for intelligent households? So my questions may be a bit different than what a family officer will ask. Uh, and a family office who doesn't have internal expertise may ask you very basic questions about, but you are investing into an IoT, uh, you, you're investing in the IoT space. Can you tell me what is the market size of the IoT industry today? Now, these are questions we may know the answer because they are, we read, keep on reading a lot of reports and you know, some of the working papers. So the level of questioning may be a bit different. They subsequently over a period of years do get up to a stage where they start building their own uh, internal models for some niches, not all of them, but some niches they really want to go ahead in. But that takes around four, five, six years and a continuity of an expert being there internally. Uh, for us, uh, you know, advising families is bread and butter. So for us, continuity is never a problem because we are a knowledge, uh, we are a knowledge business and the knowledge keeps on accumulating. So even if uh, we keep on adding new people to enhance our investment teams and experts, the knowledge just keeps on accumulating and the client gets an advantage of that. So obviously our question questioning line or you know the, the 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 level we start off keeps on getting better and better to a stage that in couple of sectors we actually have very few questions from the fund manager because most of the assessment we do from their track records the type of exits they've happened their timing of exits uh, what happened in each and of their underlying investing companies because we could have gone threadbare into each and every of their investments so i think that is a constant uh, improvement which is happening and Family offices will reach that place, I think, over the next period, few years of uh, time. Well, it's fantastic. You've given a lot of insights into how family offices think and how uh, LPs think for that matter. Now, it creates a good segue into my last segment, which is a rapid fire where I want to put you on the spot and ask you a few questions about your investor persona. And yeah. I want to start off with this first question. It is, what is your expectation for India and the Indian LP ecosystem, say five years down the line, 2025? What is the vision that you have? 
So I think the first uh, vision I have, which actually people like me and uh, people who are supporting the whole startup ecosystem uh, in, in India, I think our vision is very simple that we will have more Indian funding and more Indian capital being the larger LP for most of the fund or startup investing in India. Now, I do understand that I'm talking about the early stage startup ecosystem, early stage investment ecosystem. I'm not touching upon the pre-growth and the growth, which is the private equity space, because that requires very large checks and very large check sizes. But in the, especially the early stage space, I'm pretty sure that the LP uh, landscape will start, the center of gravity will start moving towards family offices or Indian capital investing in Indian startups in the next five, six, seven years. How fast will it happen? I don't know, but that's surely going to happen and we'll see more Indian capital supporting and taking advantage of the early stage ecosystem. I do hope uh, on the other side, which is the growth capital, which is private equity, I do hope that we see a lot of family offices joining together as informal groups or formal groups or becoming part of platforms or private equity funds to provide capital for the exits uh, of some of these large businesses to private equity funds. And you may have noticed many private equity funds have been on a buying spree uh, lately in the Indian market. So that's, that's a space I also look at besides the startup ecosystem space or the early stage investing space where we think Indian capital will keep on growing. But I'm pretty sure that on the venture capital till series B, series C kind of space, we'll have more Indian capital uh, funding startups and uh, making good exits, which ultimately will get routed into, you know, more money supporting new age startups and creating this whole entrepreneurial, uh, you know, self-generating ecosystem. That's fantastic. Now, the second question that I have is with you personally, for you from a personal standpoint, what risks are you willing to take today and what are you not in terms of investing both in a fund manager as well as in terms of advising and taking on new clients from a family office uh, advisory perspective? Uh, so on a personal level, you know, uh, being in a multifamily office, Akash puts a lot of limitations of what we can invest into. So for example, as part of our internal policies of uh, compliance and uh, and non-conflict nature, we cannot do a lot of direct investments into stocks. We have to go through managers. Uh, so there are a lot of limitations, uh, you know, people uh, specifically linked to the investment space in most multifamily offices uh, overseas and India as well go through. So our, you know, our, my personal investment scope will be much less as compared to what our families go through. But as I look at my families, I think one aspect of family office management, which uh, globally, many multifamily offices, uh, you know, really vouch for, or uh, literally that's the holy grail is risk management. You know, most of us talk about venture capital investing, listed equities, what kind of returns, supernormal returns, valuations in the market. These are a common parlance. But frankly, uh, families actually are more aware, uh, you know, more afraid of this time when they have unknown risk in their portfolio. They have unknown uh, issues in their portfolio, which are exposing them to high risk in any asset class, which includes the private market space as well. So I think going forward, if you ask me about what kind of expectations I have from saving returns and what kind of risk I'm okay with, what kind of risk scenarios I can build in, I think India is getting a bit more complex as an investment uh, space. Yes, we will get a lot of opportunities because it's a large 
large economy with large uh, you know large middle class and hence the consumption cycle uh, consumption size is 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 great uh, you have a growing population and a good educated population and hence consumption demand will keep on increasing but as risk goes going forward particularly in the venture capital space i think the risk is about an overhyped uh, asset class a risk is about uh, asset class which gets overvalued or starts get boiling over on investments uh, valuations just because there's too much of money chasing uh, the same set of startup founders so i think uh, for for our clients what we foresee is an efficient risk management uh, platform is required for each family and you know we should not just be talking about investments or just the expectation of returns that are there but the risk management part is something which i look at becoming more important for family offices than any of the assessment of which asset class will do better or will private markets give you the kind of returns that are there in the market uh, just to give you one small example uh, how many of us actually how many of our advisors actually break down the listed equity space and the unlisted equity space and realize that their overall uh, exposure to one particular sector let's take the case of say autos is massive because their investors in the listed space through you know companies like you know hero or bajaj or tvs but they are also in the active ev space they are into ev battery space they are into a, a manufacturer which you know provides uh, you know which provides tire technology or provides battery management system so exposure to autos is great so that kind of you know vision of risk and how do you view risk and hence uh, understand how do you want to control risk is something which we are looking for as a key key determinant player uh, going forward if i am able to um, understand your question and maybe my answer is 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 there no that's perfect that there's some really good points that you hit on in that uh, in that answer and i do agree with it especially in terms of the appetite um and and the risk appetite of investors today it really comes down to a lot of macroeconomic factors as well and we touched upon this in the previous part of the episode so all of that need to be kept in mind especially in the next 5 years given how a lot of things are going to change that the exits that are becoming in the vc industry which might get more players involved into the ecosystem and that again goes back to the fundamental crux of you know investors and how much risk they're able to take on to their own plate um going forward or in the near near term future now what are the core economics of venture capital and maybe one step further about lps and structuring um, you know your lp table that all fund managers need to understand um so if you look at the lp space today uh, and just to take you back uh, maybe a decade earlier uh, you know we had this strong uh, let me call it a heritage of us oriented structuring of funds which was bought into india so if you remember the hurdle rates were still around 7 in some cases even 6 and 8% mm-hmm. now when we used to ask the fund managers why is it at 6 because uh, i understand hurdle rate is not an assured return but you are trying to take a carry for a return which is lower than a bank deposit in india so why is it so the answers would have been this is the way we have worked in us markets when you know when us markets benchmark rates or interest rates were 1x of 1 by x of the interest rates in india so we have seen a bit of a you know so called false heritage 10 years back 12 years back or even sometimes 8 years back it was persisting uh, tropicalization of the same venture capital structures has to be done for india 
India is a very different economy. Uh, we have very different expectation of returns, uh, expectation of risk, and also the fact that today I can go and maybe give money to a good top quality bank or a government of India security at whatever. Forget the rates, but at five, six, seven percent, I can easily get that kind of a risk-free return. Now, consequently, the structuring the uh, GP has to do for the LP has to be, you know, to has to be absolutely convincing enough for the Indian investor. So let's take an example of the same hurdle rate. Now, hurdle rates for most funds are, you know, going towards uh, 10, 11, 12. In some cases, we've even seen 13 and 14 as hurdle rates. And the reason for that is if you're uh, at one point of time, if your expectation of uh, returns from uh, equity markets was 12 and 13, uh, would you pay a carry to a private equity or a venture capital fund manager to give a hurdle above a hurdle rate of what you expect from the listed equities market? You won't because unless it is you're giving me an, at least an equity return because that's an, that I'm expecting from the listed equity space. I, why should I give you a carry at eight, nine, 10, when listed equities are supposed to give me 12, 13. So things changed over a period of time. And as I said, we are at 12, 13, 14% in the hurdle rate. So the structuring became a bit more uh, localized for India. Secondly, uh, I think we initially, if you remember the times, most of these funds were sold. And I'm using this word sold because there are various placement agencies, various wealth management outfits who excel in placing funds and selling funds. So anybody who had to fulfill the initial raise had to go out to these placement agents, brokers, uh, very well-known wealth management entities who would then put it as their uh, you know, product of the month and then sell. They would make a set of fee. They will make a, maybe sometimes part of the management fee and in some cases part of the carry as well. So very hardcore selling had to be done over a period of time. So... Uh, the ability of the GP to structure a fund vis-a-vis -vis having differentiated management fees, not on the basis of uh, the size of the check, but on the basis of what type of an investor is coming in and whether the investor is coming through the intermediated route or coming in directly. People were very afraid of doing that. GPs were very afraid because if they were raising just, for example, 100 crores in the Indian markets, 80 crores were being raised by that placement agent or a combination of agents in that space who basically meant there would be a set of fee in the fund. There would be a high management fee. Uh, only if your ticket size were larger, we'll give you any kind of benefit. But then the process started where families said, look, I want to invest in that particular fund, but I'm not being intermediated. So why should I end up paying that set of fee? Or why should I keep on paying such a high management fee just so a brokerage can be given to a placement agent? which in the case of the family office, nobody's there in between. So I think there were uh, changes in the structuring which happened consequently where you have seen various versions of it as we speak. You know, there's a family and friends round even in the fund space. Uh, there is a pure investment ticket size rounds which are there. And sometimes uh, there is a, there, there may be a share class D or E, whatever you may call it, which may be at the discretion of the uh, GP. So I think they need to understand specifically for the family offices who are unintermediated, who are coming in directly to invest, who are not going through any brokers and they are just themselves reaching out to these managers that structure the funds carefully. And I may sound very lame when I say that 
high uh, fees or fees in general is a topic of a bit of a lot of pain not a bit of a pain but a lot of pain when negotiation starts happening between the family office and the fund manager and the worst part is that out of maybe out of two meetings almost one and a half meetings get you know allocated to just negotiating on fees that why is this fee so high and all without the focus being on what is the thesis of investing where do you think the opportunities lie and all that stuff so i think structuring has to be done by most gps looking at their possible source of capital and understanding that the each source of capital family office institutional investors or uh, intermediated uh, sourced you know deals through placement agents will have very different expectations of uh, fee and management fee i think that's the challenge which most gps need to solve now and they need to clear it up i mean this happened in the listed market space when sebi came in said direct quote for mutual funds direct quote for pmss uh, and i think sebi is now looking at aifs in particular as well and we'll see a lot of action happening in the aif space in the coming uh, possibly next two years when there will be more uh, structuring uh, liberalization for uh, the gps it will be more structured nothing will be hidden and i think that structuring will also give a lot of comfort to the family office investors to make sure that they get their due as far as uh, their cost of investing is concerned that's fantastic now this is great advice for emerging fund managers and fund managers who are reaching out to family office this has been a very insightful episode monish thank you so much for your time i have learned a whole lot about how family offices are structured and what kind of thought process goes from both within family offices and how you as an lp as well think about certain things when you're investing in new fund managers so thank you again for so much of your insights my, i'm it's been ahead, my pleasure uh, akash it's been my pleasure and thank you for having me on this lovely platform that you have i'm sure uh, you know you'll you'll add up to a very large uh, bucket of knowledge i think an ecosystem deserves people like you to make sure that they have access to this kind of a knowledge and happy to contribute uh to this ecosystem that we call uh, you know our uh, our own um, you know as we go ahead and create this whole uh, private market space in india well that brings us to an end of an amazing episode i have learned so much about structuring of family offices fundraising from a fund manager perspective and how lps approach opportunities in india thanks for opening the floodgates for more lps to come on the show manish I had a great time chatting and learning from you. If you're like me and enjoyed it too, go ahead and rate and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting platform so as to not miss out on our future episodes. We're ending this year on a big bang with two more episodes that are slated to come in. So make sure you tune back in to catch them both. Until then, stay safe everyone and continue to keep hustling.